0: All good. Welcome to the Transit Matters Podcast <laughs> episode I have no idea what number. Today is Tuesday, December first, two thousand fifteen, and we're gonna talk about advocacy efforts and gonna update you on some of the things that are going on and have some discussions on where we stand on some of the hot topics. I'm gonna be talking about fare increases, service cuts, uh, low ridership, high cost services, and uh, big time service planning and we will touch on hopefully on the Green Line extension debacle. The usual well. <laughs> yeah. um I am Jeremy Mendelson. I am a transit planner, geographer, and a longtime Boston transportation advocate. My life has evolved around transit and learning to bicycle as an adult, and I'm passionate about the role transportation plays in social and economic justice.
1: I'm Mark Ibunya, and I'm the curator of our blog and social media feeds. By day I am an IT systems administrator, and by night I'm the Leslie Nope of transit, geeking out over meeting celebrities in transportation and getting knee-deep in advocacy.
2: I'm Josh Fairchild, I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as a lawyer, but in my free time, I like to indulge in my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks.
3: And today we have... I'm Jarrett, I'm the newest board member here at Transit Matters. I'm also from from Oklahoma City, uh, via Houston and Cincinnati. Uh, I work on community revitalization with AmeriCorps, and uh, my passion is where equity, transit, and housing meet, and today's uh, especially special for, for those two topics of uh, equity and transit as uh, today's anniversary of Rosa Parks uh, um, and the, uh, the bus boycott. That's right. Yeah. Um, I I
1: retweeted you, and I think it was uh, one of the transit agencies out there actually saved
0: the front seat of their buses in her honor. Yeah, it so was uh, Dart in Dallas. That, there we go. Excellent, and uh, we are at the WMBR studio uh, today at MIT, recording over here. So I hope this sounds good, and you enjoy. Um, today, we're gonna the first thing we're gonna be talking about today is uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, fare increases. This is a topic that has come up again, unfortunately, in the uh, fiscal and management control board meetings, and um, we thought we'd uh, spend a few minutes just just talking about uh, our thoughts on fare increases. Um kind of from where I'm coming from is uh you know there there's been some talk among a few members of the board that there should be along with fare increases there should be uh free or discounted fares for low income riders and um if from where I'm coming from I, I think the concept is good uh that you know people who have trouble affording transit uh should should get some help but there's some very serious risks uh number 1 in in how that program is is implemented but more importantly in Creating a two tier transit system by raising fares for everyone else, and without a similar increase in the cost of driving cars, people who have other options will choose driving over transit, which is just a death spiral of lower ridership, higher fares, etc.
2: Yeah, you know, Jeremy, this is um, something we began seeing op eds, I want to say, the end of the summer. Beginning to talk about well, we you know if we're gonna if if we do increase fares, maybe the future needs to be that we have uh, income qualifications for uh, persons of certain income levels to be able to get discounted fares, or maybe even if we didn't, um, now it's it's not a new idea because uh, you know we do have the university pass program right. and the, the high school student uh, have have lesser fares, and and I think it, it definitely strikes us as being a progressive thing, and and who can be against that? One of the concerns we have is that it makes. Uh, fair increases more palatable uh and and because of what you said, Jeremy, about leading to a two-tiered system, and this is something that uh, former uh, Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi uh, really harps on, and, and he finds this to be you know, basically a place where he wants to stand his ground, is he's really concerned about having a two-tiered transportation network because when you have Ubers, lifts, and Bridges, uh, and now Uber Pool and Lyft Line coming in, there is a very viable next-tier-up premium transit service available for anyone who wants to just shell out a few more bucks. And so if people are saying, I have to put up with the same or worse service if there's cuts and I have to pay a little bit more they might say you know what most of the time I'll just pay a little bit more and get a much better service and that leads to that death spiral that we we talk about amongst ourselves a lot I don't know how much we've talked about it in our podcast but where you're raising your raising your rates instead of investing in your product and that often leads to lower revenues not higher revenues so
1: Yes. what what you end up with is is turning transit into a welfare state which is as opposed to i guess today where it's not technically a welfare <laughs> state but people politically treat it as such like oh we're just the people who ride transit are just the poor people and you know why don't they just drive or the people who mo- who drive the most are the ones who we need to spend the most on because that's that's the that's the majority of people and that's where we need to spend our our transportation dollars isn't i mean is that
2: Mark, I think you're totally right, and I want to also hear what um, what Jared has to say about this, because he has had a lot of work in advocacy yeah. and campaigns around social equity um, and the intersection of that with transportation and jobs and, and the like, and, and one of the most important things is because you're right, Mark, most Americans think that transit is a social welfare um, project, basically. Most Americans drive their cars, and anyone outside of major metropolitan areas that have good quality transit, and I'm going to include Boston in that, because when you come from another part of the country that doesn't have transit, you are blown away by what Boston has to offer. Now, once you live here for a while, you get jaded, and you see how much better it should be or could be. Um, But we need to remember that we have a very high-quality product compared to what a lot of people are used to. And that being said, everyone else who doesn't have that just thinks of it purely. As, and even people in our own region who don't ride it think that this is just something that is offered for poor people um, who don't have cars. And so, anything that we do to pander more to that stereotype, I think, will just reinforce that notion. And and this is where I do want to get a little bit more comment from Jared on this on the subject.
3: Absolutely. Well, and and that's because in in some cities, in I would say most cities, uh, the transportation agency does work as a as a welfare um, as a welfare tool because that's you know, in most cities, they're designed in a way that um, that anybody who has the means is going to get a car. Even people who don't have the means get cars because the city is just completely not designed for that. And so, you know, Boston is is blessed in that um, in that it's it's got the, the the physical layout where you know where you can um, get get on and get by without a car. And so, um, you know, that's the difference. And like you said, you, there's definitely a very palpable fear of 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 crossing crossing that bridge where people who do have the means uh to get a car or you know because of boston's uh you know layout and, and and the density and the traffic maybe not get a car but like you said look into options like uber and lyft uh and other things um in you know you you very well could see uh, could see the transportation system split like that where there's you know system for the have nots and right. a system for the haves Paying also, your way out of the system yeah we, we also need to remember the transit
2: doesn't operate in a vacuum our, our economic basket of goods in boston is not just transit. When we're thinking about transit prices, the reason that transit is uh, is becoming so popular, and we had a survey that we discussed uh, in depth <laughs> with Rich Parr uh, in an episode that hasn't been posted yet, Jeremy. I think uh, not yet. It'd be becoming out very soon, um, but we, but we recorded it uh, a little over a week ago, and we talked about you know millennial, actually young professional. Um, enormous growth in their preference for transit and it's because when you well it's not just be they they prefer walkable neighborhoods that that's kind of like the end of the line uh, as far as the conclusions that you can that you can reach they prefer those types of whether it's where they live or where they work or where they play they want it to be walkable and that requires and supports transit but the other thing is that in areas like Boston and New York and other big cities the cost of food the cost of housing the cost of daycare once you begin to have kids those things all factor into do I need to take transit? Does that help me have the lifestyle I want? Can I afford a car, even if I wanted it? Yeah. Can I afford one car or two cars? Those, all those things cannot be forgotten when we dis when we discuss fare increases. Yeah. Because as soon as somebody crosses that threshold of getting a car, that's a sunk cost. They're not going back. Um, moving further out into a non-transit um, friendly uh, neighborhood, that's a threshold that they're not going to come back on. So these are really important things. The other topic that we should probably begin discussing now, and this gets back to I think where Jeremy started the discussion, was well, we've talked about raising fares and we've talked about discounts. What are the other options? And so I think the initial uh, discussion uh, around the discount was, well, maybe the MBTA or MassDOT would somehow be doing income qualification. Um, people could maybe fill out a form and prove that they were on WIC or um, uh, SNAP benefits or had some other qualification um Certified by by the government that already the, certified, right? Exactly. That that then MBTA would just say, okay, if you check this box, then we'll do a little background check and okay, whatever they would have to do. Um, there's other options, and you know we talked about the the U Pass program, the University Pass program, which you know we support that. Um, I think another option, and this is you know I come from uh, an attorney, I work in tax uh, now more than I have before. And I, I think about this and also taking tax classes in law school. I don't want to geek anybody out too much here, <laughs> but um, you know when you talk about Tax policy, um, one of the m- most effective tax policies as far as redistribution, I don't want to say a word that's ideologically um, uh, tinged with, with. Um, if people have problems with, with that kind of a word of income redistri- redistribution, but if you're thinking about ways that you can help you know, the working poor, which is another one of those terms um, that people feel like, well, you are going to help somebody, we're going to help the working poor, the earned income tax credit. Um, mm-hmm. goes a long way and, and most economists say this is the absolute best thing we've ever come up with for helping um, give people a, a, you know a hand up um, who are working and it encourages them actually to work more based on the way that it's handed out one of the ways that we can think about doing that in Massachusetts is we can think about uh, a, tr- a transit tax credit you know and I would encourage a yeah. refundable transit tax credit that is income-based maybe even on a sliding scale and so at that rate it, it has the same net effect in your overall um, income and your overall ability to, to produce goods right. of a lower transit pass. Um, but first of all, MassDOT doesn't have to be involved in determining who qualifies. Second of all, um, Mass doesn't come out of MassDOT's purse. <laughs> yes, that's uh, the
1: biggest thing: is that if you if you cut it, if you reduce, if you offer reduced uh, reduced fare passes, where do where do where do you make up that money? Where do you make up that revenue? Um, so I, I mean, we already also offer uh, at a federal level and. And though we have to fight for it every single time, there is a, a, reauthorization of the federal federal transportation bill. We have to, we do have uh, federal tax credits, uh, for for commuters, and actually, uh, those tax credits have tended to favor people who drive to work, and we always have to fight tooth and nail for those tax credits for transit riders.
3: Yeah. Well, and also looking at the equity standpoint. Um, you know, if 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 it's not coming out of Mastodon's purse, that also helps uh, because you don't have an us versus them mentality. Because if right. if you you know if you have to raise fares to subsidize um, you know low income passes, then it just turns into a you know an, an an us versus them and oh you know we're we're just subsidizing this and and you get into that that same rhetoric uh, that anti poor uh, rhetoric that you know really isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I really like the
2: indirect feedback loop of the tax credits because it doesn't bring up any of those issues. It doesn't bring up... It, it's an indirect subsidy of the legislature or the state towards more transit. Um, it's probably going to end up being transportation generally because right now what we have, I believe, I don't want to misquote, but right now I believe w- what our um, tax policy is is that you get a, uh, a half non-refundable credit, I believe, for transit passes, commuting expenses, yep, it's transit yep. and parking and... Um, tolls spent towards commuting. And you get half of that back as a, as a deduction. I said a credit as a deduction. So it subtracts from your tax bill owed. Um, but it's not refundable, I don't believe. And so this the difference here would be, you know, if you are very low spectrum on income, very low end of the spectrum, then let's say your transit pass costs $1,200 for the year. Well, you'd get $1,200 in your refund from the state or something like that uh, is, how, is how that would work. And that's the state spending more money on transit because they're not taking it from the MBTA, hopefully. Because right. it's, it's yeah. indirect. Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah. more money spent on transit uh without the mbta having to to have that be an expense that comes out of Mm -hmm. their pocket but jeremy to to get back to kind of our position or our discussion about fares we're almost conceding the point here by talking about discounts the real point is fare increases
0: yeah i mean the real point is you know as i was mentioning is like you know you you increase the fares and you don't increase the cost of driving then it's just you know when it's just gonna you're gonna wind up with a death spiral and no fare increases without congestion pricing. Right, yeah. right. I mean, and and you know this goes to to some of the things that we talk about with regard to service planning and um, some of the other the discussion around some of these high cost services, the, the low ridership routes that are you know being looked at for elimination. And you know if you if you just at the surface and you do a very su- superficial analysis and you say oh okay these routes are expensive these are not and you know you do that first of all you do the, the whole route level which is, you know it ignores the distinct markets and everything but if you you know if you just say um, oh this route's expensive let's get rid of it you ignore the fact that there's there are serious service quality issues and how service quality impacts the the use of these services so things like coordinated connections the fact that you have to pay a second fare if you need more than two vehicles um, you know, all of these things and, and, uh, obviously on-time performance being, being a huge thing, you know, if you have to deal with all of these hassles and, um, we talked about the green line, right? The one of the, the green line is a capacity right now. Um, the other rail lines have gone up, the ridership has gone up like 30% in the past 10 years. The green line has basically, has gone up a little bit, but it's basically flat now is because you know, if you try to use the green line, you know, and and it's just such a disaster. You're just like, oh, screw that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. And listen, we need
2: to be careful. And we had a conversation, Jeremy and I did earlier today, which was recorded and will be a podcast. Um, (laughs) Maybe already will be out by the time this one, uh, you know, hits the the airwaves. But um, we were speaking with Alon Levy of Pedestrian Observations blog post. And and he was saying, you're not at capacity. And we say capacity on the green line and the orange line and the red line, and we mean the trains are full. We don't mean that we're actually using up every right. bit of infrastructure yeah. that we have. Yeah. The headways, yeah, yes, the headways uh, in the Central Subway and the Green Line are are pretty good. They, they could, act, they were actually better. He was pointing out at the beginning of the 20th century than they are today. Right. Um, they had different ways of of controlling the, the gap spacing. Um, but but he was pointing out, you know, with the Green Line, it's really you're talking about a power issue, and we're saying, well, that's expensive. And he's saying it will, you know, compared to what? It's yeah
1: it's a power issue and and also a technology issue we need to upgrade the power systems and we also need to upgrade the signal system the signal system alone would probably cost us seven hundred million dollars which is about the same cost or no uh, sorry I'm trying to think of one other project that we have
2: on the books but I don't think
1: I think that's actually like what the one Green of the Line cheapest. extension should
2: cost <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's one of the cheapest projects yeah. so just when we're talking about capacity and what we're, yeah. ta- what we're talking about is are you are, are we wanting to invest in a system that brings in more revenue or are we just gonna make cuts to a system and then raise fares? You know, that's, that's a bit of a dichotomy. And yeah. we, don't really, we don't really, I think at Transit Matters, we don't wanna concede, concede that issue. We wanna say, hold on, full stop. We shouldn't be taking out spreadsheets and cutting fares because we're trying to you know, m- make, make the revenue match the cost. We need to think about, first of all, this is an infrastructure that w- we need to have for our economy. What's the what's the yeah. what's the, um, the 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 problem? The impact is, of that
1: exactly. And but the problem is that uh, the the things that will imp- improve service to a, a degree that's tangible are not things that w- that come out of the the the. The budget, the operating budget, which is what the fares go to, the uh, that comes from capital, uh, the capital budget, which is what's authorized by the legislature and comes out of like grants and all that sort of stuff. So there's always going to be this disconnection between uh, the fares that you pay and the quality of service that you get because the fare that you pay does not go to uh, does not go to buy new trains. It it goes to pay the operator. It goes to the some of the maintenance costs. It goes to power the trains to power the electricity of keep the lights running, um, and that's about it. And those are that that the, those are the numbers that are going up and down, uh, and that we're trying to compensate for with the fares. So it's it's not that you know it, it's not. Th- I mean the trains are getting more expensive to maintain every single year because they're getting older, um, but. To buy new trains, that comes direct. That's not your fares aren't going to go to that, uh, and not because of some sort of oversight or whatever. Th- I mean, that's that's just the way. Well, it uh, the yeah, yeah, that's works. a
2: great point, I mean, One of the, one of the things um, that's led to the operating costs spiraling out of control is state of good repair, right. which is a capital cost that we've deferred for years and years and years. Yeah, um, and so that drives up op- operating costs. Um, but but the broader point here is is to say okay we shouldn't just be reflexively increasing fares because we have scary operating budget increases we need to also think about well how do we subsidize other modes and and is it fair to apply a different rationale to transit than we do to the highways okay, so there's a whole conversation that needs right. to happen there. What if fares still have to increase? Well, we have a, a law on the books that most people I would have to uh, believe. I, I was working in the legislature in, in the Senate and I, I was an intern. I'm not going to act like I was, you know, in these discussions, but I was closely following the legislation and updating uh, the center. I was working for on what was coming out of, you know, with the, the revisions with each time uh, with the budget bill was coming, what was coming through in the, in the uh, conference committees and things like that. And, um, the understanding of everyone that I was familiar with was that it was every other year you could increase a total of five percent. So that meant two point five percent per year could happen every other year. And now there's a different interpretation that's coming out that is, well, maybe we can increase it five percent per year. I don't really know where we're getting to these numbers. Um, I mean, people have fair interpretations, but. There's not a lot of people who had that interpretation in my memory um, back then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and so so I think that we also need to say, okay, if you're going to increase it, we need to stick to the interpretation that people had in mind back then, and that interpretation doesn't say you have to increase it by 2.5%. It was up to 2.5% per year, so up to 5%. So we need to try to say... You need to rationalize. You, you don't just automatically raise it that much. You need to rationalize why you're raising it that much. And we're in a we're in an environment of almost zero inflation, so it's hard to say, oh well, there's inflation. You know, this the basket no. of goods is getting more expensive because that's right. not true. Um, although you know, housing is things like that. Um, okay, so we deal with all of that, and then we say, okay, if you're going to increase fares, now we're talking about what we can do about it, and that's where we get to the discount or the or the tax credits things right. like that. But I don't think that we should right off the bat say, okay, let's let's assume we're gonna increase fares and let's talk about discounts.
3: Well and, and I think the other thing too is is, you know, fare fair increases don't need to happen unless there's a, a vision. I mean that, that's how you get people to go along with it. You know, yes, the T is underfunded, but you know, if if you're not talking about you know if you're not talking about expanding the system, if you're not talking about making the service better, you know, that that that's where you get the big pushback on fares and you know, and I, I some of the conversation has been around, right. well, you know, Boston has Um, you know, Boston's, um, you know, the the price of the fares is so much lower than all these other cities. Well, you're you're looking at a system that really hasn't, you know, really hasn't expanded since the 80s and is still very much so undersized compared to to D.C. or San Francisco or Chicago or even Philadelphia in terms of just the actual number of track miles. Uh, And so, you know, without talking about what people are getting along with the fares, you know, it's really a conversation that's a non-starter with a lot of, Right. With a lot of Bostonians.
2: Another yeah. thing to remember um, when we're talking about discounts, fare increases, and uh, in the tax credit, which is something I know I'm pushing. I don't. I don't know if a lot of other people are pushing it. I think it's a great idea. But one of the reasons that I, that I push this is because we have a governor right now who you'll also hear in the podcast where we talked to Rich Parr of Mass Inc. Polling Group. The governor has astronomical and Teflon approval ratings, uh, the the likes of which. You really haven't seen in modern Massachusetts politics and it's so much so that the Democrats aren't really even going after him he's got a better relationship with the legislature than um, governor Patrick did because his approval ratings are so high despite anything that might happen with the MBTA so far we'll see what happens in the winter Um, this is a governor who made it very clear when he was running for office that he would not be raising taxes and then there was asked they asked for clarification in one of the debates they said "Well, well Mitt Romney said that but then he raised fees at the DMV and he said, "Okay, well, I'm not going to raise taxes or fees." And you know that was interesting. From two, the biggest interesting thing with that is that DMV apparently DMV fees are considered taxes, <laughs> but MBTA fares are not considered taxes. So that's a really interesting uh, dichotomy because the governor obviously has not had any problems <coughs> with discussions of fare increases, <laughs> but we're not going to raise you know fees at the at the DMV or the RMV. I'm sorry. So you know that's this is something where we have a governor who. Um, I think would be willing to entertain the tax credit idea because that fits in line with the the way that he ran for office and um, the, the platform that he has had before and while he's governor. So that's one of the reasons that I may be pushing that where people are saying, where is this coming from, left field? It's not coming from left field. It's coming from the right wing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, you know, the, the other thing that we didn't mention here is that if you're going to um, sort of. Another way to handle discounts or free fares is 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 to work with the social service agencies that you know. So, like if you, for example, if you qualify for WIC, maybe you get a you get a free pass through WIC, you know. And so you're not gonna, it sort of weeds out some of the some of the shady stuff and right. You know, having to. You're not turning
3: the T into a social service office. Yeah, right, Right, right. Like
1: how they're basically a bank with our fare system. So yeah, (laughs) putting more putting more responsibility onto the T to do one
2: more thing. Yeah. I agree, and I think that should be—that's a separate discussion, right? That's not mm-hmm. a, a mass MassDot or MBTA discussion. That's a DCF discussion, or that's—you know—maybe there's there's also charities may do the same thing. They probably they hand out, um, you know, food gift cards. They could hand out tea gift cards. And I, I'm not trying to say that this needs to become an issue where we have to go to charities, charities to be able to use, <laughs> use transit. I'm just yeah. saying that that's an example of this being a separate conversation yeah. than MassDot or MBTA. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, I want to go back to some of the uh, the high cost services. I'm um, gonna. A little bit of time here to talk about this. Um, we, so, I'm, um, you know, we, we think about capacity issues and and other things, and you know, Josh mentioned, you know, thinking about what what that means. Um, you know, we hear a lot of conversation uh, around the bus system. Uh, it's almost it's almost hardly ever discussed that you know, commuter rail is often expensive. The, the ferries have not even been talked about. That's very expensive to operate. Uh, not suggesting we we get rid of them, but you know, I just want to give a little perspective on that and. Um, you know, looking at these at these bus routes, I think it's really important to do an analysis. You know, we haven't we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit, but we haven't had uh, a, a service plan, a, a uh, essentially a uh, consideration of some of the issues around the service, and making changes to routes and schedules. Um, we haven't had that in since two thousand eight. You mean
2: comprehensive, like the whole
0: system? Uh, not, not not quite the whole system, but you know, making changes, making significant changes to routes. Yeah. Uh, the T, according to their service delivery policy, does this every two years. They make routine changes. You know, they'll decide if a new shopping mall will open, and they'll they'll you know decide, oh, this bus route should go in there. They'll they'll uh, you know they'll have a you'll know, have one re- that you'll reduce the frequency to increase the frequency on another route. It's cost neutral, but it's it's sort of reallocating the the resources a little bit, um, and that hasn't been done in seven years. And um, it's it's something that that desperately needs to be done. Um, the the other thing that you know I'll get into is the um, in the board meeting last week, uh, the service planning department the team presented the board with three options for uh, their strategy going forward. And they said you know we'd like some feedback here. Um, those three options were the minor schedule changes that you see uh, quarterly, that every time uh, those paper schedules are updated, if you have, if you still uh, get a paper schedule. Um, some of them say schedule change. I still don't know why they still produce the ones that don't have a schedule change every quarter, but that's maybe another topic. Um, but they, so so that's one thing that's ongoing. Um, it doesn't really require any public outreach because it's just very minor. It's like, you know, this bus is taking a little longer to navigate the street. So, you know, we give it a few more minutes in the schedule, that kind of thing. Um, and there's also the, the more medium changes, which are what I'm mentioning in the service plan. You know, things like adjusting a route in a little bit. Yeah, you have to go out and do some kind of public process because you have to talk to people and see what they think about it, and you know if they have if they have input. So would this be analogous to like the key bus routes? Yeah, sort of like on that level. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, um, and then the although I would argue that the key bus routes was even a little less than that because it wasn't they didn't really change the route very much, and some people even argue that it wasn't even you didn't have to go to the public because you're just moving stops here and there, um, but. The the other thing that they talked about that they proposed was uh, to do a s- big system wide review to just take a look at everything and say what's working, what's not. Um, travel patterns around Boston have changed pretty significantly over the past hundred years. Our system pretty much hasn't since we stopped building the subway. Um, we made little tweaks, you know, when we moved the Orange Line, we extended the Red Line, you know, we we adjusted the busses a little bit, but we didn't really get into reorienting the system. And there are a lot of issues in terms of how the network functions that make it. Difficult to use, so it was that was suggested, and the board was was pretty much on board with that. And uh, I'm not sure that they really understood um, what what they were getting into, uh, but I think I think right now um, the well, what do you guys think about this? Let's let's uh, open it up. I've been talking for a while. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we.
1: Um, I mean, I, I see some notes further down here in our agenda that um, that they're not mutually exclusive, and that we need all three of them, and that some of them need to happen more periodically. And the system-wide <laughs> review absolutely needs to happen. Um, I, I mean, it, it shocks me that we, uh, at least according to our information, we uh, the comprehensive analysis have never been, has never been done on the entire system in its current state. And uh, I, yeah, I think it speaks to a lot of the inefficiencies and the uh, the kind of patch solutions that we've that we've come up with uh, through minor and medium changes over the years. Uh, for example, the uh, the Line line extend Silver Line Gateway project that's going on right now into uh, into Chelsea. Uh, none of the buses uh, that that go through Chelsea are really going to be realigned and re- to reconnect uh, to connect to it and act it as uh, use it as a feeder. Uh, this. I'd like to use the 111 as a as an example for another bus that's I mean that those those issues come um out, outside of outside of a service review but I mean <laughs>
0: Well, that's yeah. the, these are important yeah. issues, and, yeah. and you know looking at not just it's not just where the lines go on the map. You know, some people say, oh, we don't have a street grid, right? But it's not just where the lines are on the map. It's it's how the routes operate. Do they interface with each other? Um, you look at a place like Cambridge, for example, where um, it's it's almost impossible to go from let's say Inman Square to Cambridgeport, right? Because all the routes end at Central Square, um, with the exception of the one that's going up Mass Ave, and then it ends at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Everything ends at Harvard. You can't go through Harvard. So it's it's sort of like you know thinking about that, thinking about the frequency levels. And thinking about if if we if we you know you, the only way to really get more out of what we're spending now is um, you know if, if we don't put more put more money into the system then all we can do is make little tweaks here and there uh, but if we really want to say. Can we make the crosstown services more useful? Can we look at using limited stop and express service somewhere? No, not can the question we,
1: of h- can we make the cross-town. How do we make the we cross-town? Make <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and also, um, we've talked before, Josh, this is like one of our you know fa- favorite projects yeah. here, talking about the Orange Line going down to Roslindale and, uh, or maybe Hyde Park. Um, looking at all those bus lines that are going down there, um, dealing with the issues at Dudley Station and Northern Roxbury, um, other places where it makes sense to build rail. Well, sure, and it's changing, even it's even up. easier. I'm sorry, Mark. Didn't so, talk over no, no, bit. no.
2: Go ahead. It's even easier if we're going to talk about our, our favorite, you know, topic again with the Orange Line and, and the Washington Street corridor um, down towards Rosendale and Jamaica Plain. It's even easier than redoing the bus routes there because you've got a parallel rail service that we can also talk about high cost uh, high cost services that have low ridership because. Yeah. Yes, the Needham Line is uh, standing room only, uh, a few trains in the morning, a few trains in the evening, which is all, all that they have is a few trains in the morning and the evening mm-hmm. in that rush hour box. But if you ride it you know, in the middle of the day, 10 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, whatever the times are, I forget exactly what they are because they're not clock face. But when those trains come through, they only have one car open. There's still five or six cars on the train. Mm-hmm. They're all closed off except for the, 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 the last car that pulls up to the, hi- the high loading platform. And then the cars have full. Meanwhile, there's 10 buses going by on Washington and Belgrade that are beyond capacity and they're turning people away. Why is it? It's because there's two different fares and because people don't understand the commuter rail schedule. So there's a lot we could do to uh, increase the the usage um, and, and the, the get more capacity out of what we have. And that, that infrastructure is expensive. And yes, trains are expensive and conductors are expensive, but laying the rails was really expensive. We have those rails there. We're not using them very much compared to, you know, those bus routes. You get better parallel service usage. We could reallocate those buses and those drivers to other routes, you know, where we don't have parallel rail service, you know.
3: Right. Well, as expensive as as expensive as it is to run the train, it's a lot less expensive if there are People actually in those other four cars. Well,
2: the
1: schedule even comes. I mean, it even comes back to the schedule. Even if we make it Zone One A, like what we did in Chelsea, and this actually came up during one of the uh, Silver Line Gateway meetings. Like, what was that two or three years ago? Um, one of the, I think, one of the city representatives was like, uh, "Yeah, I live next to the, I live next to the train station, but I always forget that there is a service there that that is the same fare." two dollars and what are we up to ten two, cents two dollars and ten cents mm-hmm. uh, to get into North Station avoid uh, avoiding the you know the you know the the debacle that is that uh, the marathon that is standing on the 111 bus and or waiting for one um, he always tells relatives or hey let me drive you in or you know go take the 111 or something because the trains uh, what is that served by Rockport and Newburyport lines uh, it the, the it's not frequent enough. It's not clockface, and so I think even if you change uh, it to Zone One A, which I think Michelle Wu is working on, uh, one of Boston City Councilors, uh, it, it our people are going to use it. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Well, is she, she going to
3: become the uh, the, uh, the the council president? I, I, my my understanding is that she announced that she had enough votes. So it's when it's, when does that election happen? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I would. I would think probably after the calendar year. Okay. Because um, she she did announce that that was part of her,
2: something she was supposedly working on in City Hall was re-examining Zone One A. Yeah. And yeah. I find it really hard to believe that once Boston Landing opens at the at the New Balance headquarters, that that's not going to be Zone One A. Oh, that's
1: absolutely going to oh, be yeah. Zone One A. At, at which point
2: gonna we're going to have to re-examine all of the other. Um, Zone One stations that are in Boston. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, and the other thing too is I think something as simple as 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 the map. I mean, yes, we you know you need to have more more frequent service on there, but if you look at the map, you know th- there's there's no indication that that these stops on the Fairmount line or or the you know the the inner stops on you know in Chelsea or um any of those there's there's no indication that those are the same price. There's no indication that that, that you should use those if you've if you've always been taking the bus or always been taking the train the subway. You know, th- there's nothing on there to indicate that something is new about this this unknown purple line that isn't even on. You know, isn't even in some of the buses. Some of the buses just have the you know the one where the 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 lines are very faint and you, yep. you can't even see. Yep. It. And so some of it is just is information. That's uh,
1: that's an open invitation to anybody who's listening to this podcast who happens to like. Making up their own maps because I know for a (laughs) fact that there are some out there. So yeah, feel free to feel free to remix the MBTA map. Uh, I don't know. Find a way to make the key bus routes a little bit more apparent or something because that's our that's the backbone of our system. And then going bringing it back to our service planning issues, uh, the the fact that though the fact that the 66 is a backbone service and is also one of the most loathed services in the city. Uh, and is also one of the slowest while still being one of the most connective it one of the most connective pieces of tissue we have in the network its it boggles my mind so uh, I um, to all of the people who have ever suffered through the pain of the 66 bus I Mm. certainly hope that the uh, the (laughs) uh, the overall system review finds some sort of solution for
2: one of the issues we're dealing with here is that the MBTA MassDOT doesn't force MBTA and and Keolis commuter rail to think of themselves as a single network, right? Obviously, with regards to fares, it's also obvious a lot of times on the map that you don't you don't understand the connectivity. Um, but also, like something that doesn't even really cost that much money. When we're talking about redoing um, the, the South Side commuter schedules are coming up soon. Um, this is something that Alon Levy proposed a few years ago, I think in 2012, in one of his blog posts. And I may be repeating it wrong, but he was saying, well, if you just rerouted the Franklin line uh, along the Fairmount line, you immediately have more service without having to add more trains or more conductors and you're not really changing anything because those people, maybe some of those people are getting off at Ruggles, maybe that would be, become an issue uh, if they're going up the uh, the southwest corridor, the North, northeast corridor um, tracks right now but that's, that's a really easy way to Reroute some current trains, get them to the same final destination, and add service to a corridor that doesn't doesn't have it. And mm-hmm. I guess for some reason we can't afford to add it.
0: I yeah. mean, that's an interesting point. You know, you talk about th- these things in silos. I mean, I was going to add the city as well. There, yeah. right? The, yep. the MBT and the city don't really talk to each other. And you know, b- part of this is, I mean, jumping around a little bit here. Is I mean, the service delivery policy is being updated right now. It's supposed to have a draft in January. Um, but the existing service delivery policy, if, if you look at the, the service plans that they've done over the years, and they've, they've done some of these metrics, if you look at these routes, you know, they say whether they pass the standard or not. And the vast majority of these, of the, the most, the most, well, you say the top 30 routes or so, the vast majority of them fail at more than one standard, whether it's crowding or frequency or, um, you know, uh, on-time performance. So... You know, these things. These are things. This is an opportunity where you know the city and the T like really need to talk to each other. And um, I don't know if it if it takes a big comprehensive plan to get there. Um, we've seen some movement on the part of the city. Um,
2: the city's doing Go Boston 2030, right? But how? Do I, what I don't understand. I think maybe just Boston has become. And maybe it's where the power centers in Boston are, as far as the city councilors and the politics of getting elected as, as mayor. They've just been able to defer to the MBTA for so long, and just say, "Well, you know, that's that's a state issue." Um, I don't I don't really understand how a city can't. Say, you know what, this is important to our citizens, and we're going to do what it takes to partner with the T to make sure that more service is available, even if we have to subsidize some of the service. Because one thing that we know from surveys is that people are willing to pay a little bit more if they get better service. So if the city could say, well, we're going to have, you know, I know that. Other people in, in transit in the area are not in favor of local impact taxes or sales taxes, or things like that. But there's a lot of options that the city could exercise. Uh, maybe they have to get legislative approval. We know Marty Walsh is somebody, um, Mayor Walsh is somebody who is very familiar with the legislative process up on Beacon Hill. So I'm sure he could find a way to get approval for the types of uh, taxes that he wants um, to, to, to levy for his own citizens to provide better services for them. I, I don't understand why that hasn't started happening yet, and I hope, I hope it does in, in the future.
1: Right. Yeah. I. I mean. Uh, so I think this is my first podcast coming back from Transportation Camp. Jeremy and Jared were there. Unfortunately, Josh couldn't join us, but I was actually in one of the uh, the regional governance. Uh, the set. The first session I went to was about regional governance, and I think this kind of ties back to one of the issues that we deal with, where each we have the MBTA has to negotiate uh, service within each different town. Uh, and and we have to do this piecemeal. And there's uh, I mean, there's no real power with any m- m- uh, metropolitan government to say, hey, look, this is we're going to do this review. And these buses need uh, these buses need priority, signal priority or, uh, you know, queue jump lanes or, you know, hey, let's do a whole corridor as BRT because we have to talk about this with every single uh, every single town that the MBTA serves, uh, and so I don't know—is that Jeremy? Does that factor in as a as a as a challenge? Is uh, dealing with every single municipality? Because obviously Boston is one of the largest municipalities that uh, that the T serves, but it's clearly also one that
0: we feel like we need to balance out. Oh, absolutely! I mean, when I when I when I was a service planner for the T, I mean, I had I believe I had thirty municipalities that I had to work with. Uh, and that was just my, you know, working out of what three, four garages that I that I had to work out out of about ten. So I mean, it it, it shows that there is, um, it, it is it is a big problem because the cities and the MBTA, um, as well as various state agencies, all have they you know they live in silos. They have their own priorities, and so you know, the, and also that you know the T is. I, I, I mean, I don't know it's going to sound mean, but I mean, I th- think this is a well-accepted fact that the T is not one of the m- more progressive transit agencies that that it exists, and and so they're they're not they've never been one to try new things. You know, they see their role as like we have to take the budget that we're given and make it work. Yep. Um We have to take the vehicles that we're given and make them work.
1: They're conservative yes. because they don't see their role as being you know advocates for right. themselves. That's right. not their that's not their point. Their point, their job is to run the system, not to. I don't, I don't know, I guess somehow advocating for yourself and saying, hey, the, the the equipment that you've given to us is equipment that we can't work with is is not, like that's too far on the political spectrum of advocacy as opposed to just saying,
2: hey, I legitimately have a gripe about My ability to do my job.
0: Yeah, I mean, in their perspective, at least.
2: Well, they try new things with Massport. You know, Massport subsidizes the Silver Line, owns some of the Silver Line uh, buses. Massport uh, pays for the Blue Line shuttles that get you to the Blue Line airport stop. Yeah. Um. So, I you know, there's I I understand that they're both under the same umbrella agency of of (laughs) MassDOT. (laughs) Yeah. And that you know they're both these sort of like semi-governmental um organizations, but. if they're able to try really ambitious things with Massport, I don't see why other people in the municipalities can't figure out a way to try something also equally as ambitious or aggressive with with the two. Yeah. I'm
3: willing to bet that it. I'm willing to bet that it was it was Massport that probably approached them with it. So it probably takes someone.
0: Massport has more money than the T does. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, yeah,
3: it takes them kind of leading by the hand. And also,
0: the other thing with Massport is that see, see, this is where you 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 have a problem. You try to solve problems, right? Massport has the problem, and that they this is largely alleviated because of that rental, the consolidated rental car facility that they just opened, but. But they have a huge problem or at least had it. at Logan Airport you had all these zillions of shuttle buses running around and then you have everybody everybody wants to drop their friends and family at the at the terminal in their car and you know, they sit there and wait. So they had a huge problem with congestion at the terminals and that's where you know and, and the Silver Line buses loaded you know, first, first of all, like adding the service was a big thing, and then also when they when they started paying so that the T could make boarding the Silverline free at the airport, Um, You know, they had a major. The bus was sitting there for five minutes, and all the tourists—they didn't know what they were doing and how to get the thing. So they were just like, "Okay, we're just going to pay you, so people can just get on and get the hell out of here." Hmm. Right. Well, I
1: mean, the the the. I mean, going back to that very specific example, that's another example—a very literally concrete example where a capital investment led to uh, significant improvement in service. They built the consolidated rental facility, the Conrack. And, and though, I don't know, maybe if you've seen us on Twitter, we've recently complained about how all of the shuttle buses go through the Conrac before they go to the terminals. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that notwithstanding, I mean, you still now, you now have significantly improved traffic through the airport, uh, though not much to say about, what is it, the O'Neill tunnel that goes underneath to the seaport, uh I've sat on a silver line bus for 15 minutes in that tunnel. And I'm right, never there's no separated <laughs> um, right of way <laughs> for yeah, the yeah. buses. But I mean, that was a consolidation that required a capital investment to consolidate all those buses and to get all the rental companies to agree to, uh, well, I guess not to only to consolidate, but then to say, we're not going to run our shuttles, we're going to let you do that, and we're going to focus
2: our. Rev- our well, r- and I think r- the, the analogy downstairs. is why can't some municipalities say, we want more service a la Watertown has been furious about, about this issue oh, yeah, there we go. over yeah. the last year. We want more service, mm-hmm. and we're willing to buy a couple buses. Please yeah. run these buses on our route, and maybe we'll even subsidize the additional drivers you need or something like that. I'm not saying that that is a realistic thing that can happen overnight. Cities have to think about this, but but if they offered that, you know, the same, that's similar to what what happens with Massport, Uh, you know, I think that's a possibility. Maybe maybe I'm unrealistic, I don't know.
1: I'm still in that mind space that it's not too late for us to have a municipal, uh, a
2: metropolitan government, but we can (laughs) talk about that another (laughs) time. (laughs) Um, To bring bring that full circle where you started, Jeremy, with the service planning, the first thing I I think about when you talk about uh, service planning is, you know, Houston and their bus reimagining and where they basically took the same operating budget and now they've they've cut travel times by, I think, 20 to 40 percent. Maybe it was 20 percent for 40% of the of the roots um, and they the roots now reach a, a much larger swath of the population um, and they the routes had traditionally been legacy routes that all went you know kind of hub and spokes downtown even though they had a grid um, street system there so now their routes are more comprehensive and can get access all over the metropolitan area now I don't think we should have the same expectation here because we don't have the street grid and, and we're not starting out as bad as they were but that's you know when we talk about the service planning, they're doing much more, maybe forty percent more, with the same budget.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's remarkable. Um, and speaking of uh, doing more with uh, the same budget, I think this discussion would not be complete without a mention of late night service that is being proposed to be eliminated, uh, basically just because uh, it costs too much uh, or I, we don't have I the said, money to. Su- to yeah, s- so and as added. I say, whenever yeah. somebody says we don't have the money, um, or you know it's too expensive. My response is says who yep. by what metric, so I, I mean I wanted to say just a few things about the late night service and I mean we can you know we should get into that. Um, the obviously I don't think I have to explain to the audience how late night service is important, <laughs> but I think w- what we're really interested in is is uh, using you know th- there are a lot of issues with the late night service that have caused it to to not really take off. And for one thing, when they cut it back in March the the net you know the ridership fell it plummeted and the net cost per rider doubled from seven to fourteen dollars, similar thing happened with the previous experiment with the night owl in 2000, uh, 2001, one two thousand five. So we should probably
2: cut it more. Is that what you're saying? Uh, it, yeah, no, we should cut it entirely. Uh, good, good math. Cut it entirely.
0: <laughs> that's that's fuzzy math, as yeah. uh, George Bush would say. Um, and and so you know the, the the issue here is that there is. Uh, there is a real opportunity for, to improve and expand it, and get to the point where we have overnight service, so that we're not the biggest city in North America without any overnight transit service. Um, what do you guys uh, think about late night and overnight service?
3: Well, s- speaking of, of, of fuzzy math, you, you brought up a good point in um, conversation we were having about you know, yes, that $13 number looks looks scary and looks terrifying, but you know that's the cost for that service alone. You know, the the total you know cost upon uh, cost you know upon all the modes is. What one, one, one twenty—the the total amount of subsidy. So you know that's the other thing is we're, we're looking at one twenty per ride. Is what you're one saying? twenty per ride. Yeah. So we're looking at it in, entirely wrong. You know, if there's only you know thirteen thousand or so people riding it every night, that thirteen thousand people. You know, yes, it costs thirteen dollars. You know, to you know to move them in the subsidy, but you know that's such a small part. And if it's providing a, a, a you know something that really is useful in keeping you know making Boston a you know a city with vibrant nightlife. In connecting people to jobs and in school, um, you know, and you know, and in keeping people, you know, who are intoxicated off the road, you know, if, if if all that is doing is slightly raising the overall cost, it's it's worth it. You know, we should even be we shouldn't focus so much on the 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 individual subsidy for that one mode.
2: Right. Looking at the thirteen dollars an hour for the per ride during the hours of extended service, as opposed to looking at the marginal increase. In the cost per ride of the entire system so if it cost a dollar which is a dollar for a dollar
0: dollar 20 dollar 20 if it's
2: up sees a dollar 20 per ride for the system and now we add you know nighttime service now let's say that the cost per ride went up to like a dollar and 22 cents you know like that seems like a great deal you know to me but when we only look at just that hour of service why am I paying their Uber ride when they can just pay the Uber ride for themselves?
3: Why? <laughs> yeah, And exactly, that person yeah. clearly has not yeah. tried to pay, tried <laughs> to get an Uber from Boylston Street uh, at 2.30. At oh,
2: yeah. Well, we're not talking yeah. about cutting service on Sunday evening, right? At Sunday at 6 p.m. or something like that. Like, there's right. other hours that are probably a very high subsidy if you were going to break that down on an hour-by-hour basis, but... We're yeah, not I mean d- dissecting every single hour I, yeah, that has yeah, low I mean, and the T ridership. is a
0: public service, right? I mean we provide a public service, and this is this is a, a service that this needs to be available, and need to ha- you need to have various options and service available at all times in order for people to use it. Yeah. I think in this case the the late night service, like as it's currently done, I think is a, a clear example of what can go wrong when you don't plan service well. Um, so this service here, um, it's you know they they just said okay we'll run the key bus routes and the the rail lines um and these are so they they ignore that the demand patterns at night are vastly different than they are in the rush hour that are causing these busiest routes so they got rid of a bunch of routes they deleted a bunch of routes the cost went up um they have right now the coverage area it omits huge sections of the city uh and it omits places like Lynn Somerville Everett Places in Dorchester, in places where you know you have large, large numbers of people who are working. You know, who, if you want to provide transit for anybody, it's you want to provide it in Dorchester and Lynn and Everett and Somerville, Waltham, uh, South Waltham, at least. And so this, so I think this is an example of it doesn't coordinate with each other. There's so many problems with it that I think B- if we, to fail. yeah, we almost designed to fail. Yeah.
3: You know? Well, and, and, and another thing people have brought up too is that you know is that the service, especially after it's cut, you know ends ends too late or sorry ends too early um... you know for for people who who you know you know who are staying until until the bars close at you know at two o'clock you know that might not be enough time to get to get to where you're going and you know it's it's not a you know you show up at X time and you're you're gonna catch the train it's something where you know you need to look online and see when the last train leaves elwife and then when the last train leaves you know Ashmont or Braintree and you know I've been there a number of times where you know the clocks. You know it. It strikes ten o'clock, and then the co- the clocks just go blank. And so you know you show up there at at you know two o'clock, two or five and there's nothing on the on the screen. And you wait for five, ten minutes, and you just say, well, you know what? I'll just call an Uber because I have you know the the um, you know the real time display is is blank, and you you know it's it's cold and it's two o'clock, and you're thinking, well, I probably just missed the train. And so part of it is it's got to be a reliable service. It's got to be something people can show up, you know, show up by. You know, show up by by two thirty. You know, in the central area, and you'll you'll get on the train. And now it's not that kind of service.
1: Well, that's the part of the problem why I stopped using it. F when they cut back the service, was that it started to become too it. It's I started having to worry. I, I stopped. I've stopped trying to worry about the tea not being available to me. I wanted to stay out however late I wanted, and I either just never made the trip. Or I just stayed out later and you know didn't didn't worry about the hassle. Well, it's
2: it's the last ride fallacy, which we should explain is when. People may not take the last ride, so the last ride might be empty, um, but they wouldn't take transit at all if they didn't know they had the last ride available. So when you move the last ride up too early, which I think is what you're alluding to, Mark, yeah. when the last ride's too early or the last ride is variable, as, as Jared was mentioning, well, then it becomes too difficult to figure out when the last ride is or when the last ride's com- you know compatible with my schedule. So I didn't take transit to get there. I-, I drove or you know whatever it was, and now I'm not even really looking at transit as an option because that last ride it's, is not sufficient. Yeah.
1: It's off the table. It's too much calculation. Mm -hmm. when
2: you're inebriated (laughs) so so the other low ridership high-cost services that have been targeted uh, are the, the some of the bus routes that are at the lower end of the ridership spectrum um mm-hmm. And I know Jeremy that's something that buses are always near and dear to your heart, yeah. and I know that uh r a did a analysis <laughs> he had a, a post rated an analysis of of all was it thirty routes that were yeah targeted?
0: they put, they put twenty eight routes on the list and it it you know it's i don't know how they came up with it i haven 't been able to figure that out, but it looks sloppy if you look at it theres there are three routes that are far and away. The the best and uh, and I'm glad I'm thinking about the the top one now. The by best you mean the worst? uh, The worst, sorry. Um, The highest cost. Now the the the, the route 191 is the highest cost route. Now I'm gonna bet that 99.9 percent of MBTA riders have never heard of the route 191. Um, Jared is shaking his head over there, even though though he lives within walking distance of the 191. Now this is a special. You know, this is one of several special early morning routes that are kind of amalgamations of different other routes, right? But it doesn't and this in this case it goes you know through fields corner and so so i'm looking at jared um, but it's so this is an example of something that if it were marketed it would do well and it does pretty well among people who know it but you know so th- there was that there was the 170 which is a special early morning route to get janitors and other low income employees out to office parks in waltham in the morning um which runs two trips so that's like kind of what are you putting that on here for and then there was uh, i think the 451 which is a route that just kind of hops around beverly um it's like the, you know low low ridership by design um and then there you know if you go down the list it, it just like they start all the others are less than $10 per per passenger and then it it gradually gets less and less and you see that you know many of them are suburban routes some of them are express routes and there's inconsistencies like the 50 I think the 502 the 504 was on there the 502 was not well, the only difference between the 502 and the 504 is the 504 runs on weekends so it's you, you start to get into this and you say okay well there's there's things that are not being looked at here and this is a sort of a, a very sloppy look at it
2: so it sounds like what you're saying is maybe they there, there's some roots that were obviously high subsidy roots that if you're going to try to lop off some of those routes, those make sense. But then trying to figure out what's the marginal difference between the obvious uh, high subsidy routes and then all the others. like how did they draw the line between the 28 routes that would they consider you know money losing routes and all the other routes? Like where do you draw that line? It doesn't really make sense to us?
0: Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not gonna suggest that, you know, anything is, you know, should or shouldn't be gotten rid of. I mean these are these are matters <coughs> that are open to discussion and, you know, very you know, everybody's passionate about their own thing I mean, this is why we have a public process, for better or worse. Um, and you know, you take a look at something like the one ninety one. So now you look at the cost and you say, Okay, it's cause forty five dollars per person and you and you're thinking, Okay, this is crazy, but there's also the one ninety two, I don't think he even made the list, but that's that's also a you know, a route that that does kind of the Huntington Avenue and goes down to Rosendale and Hyde Park. And you know, when you just look at these things you say, okay, well, what's wrong with the 191? Nobody well, nobody's ever heard of it. So you sort of it, it's like, you know, yeah, okay, I, I don't want to suggest it, that you should cut it, but I mean there's I I want I really want to take a look at why these things are failing and what we can do about it.
3: Well, and and and, and again g- going back to the same the same conversation with the um, um with the late night ridership, you know, you're talking about hundreds of people, you know, you know, in in the in the, in the low scale of that, you know. So yes, $45 is is again Really scary number, but if you're talking about, you know, you know, a couple of hundred people riding it, you know, w- what is this really doing to the, you know, to the subsidy? I mean, the the, the subsidy is, is is baked in, and that's something that you know I don't know that that when you know when the newspaper is is writing these articles, I don't know if that's something that they're talking about. You know, this isn't necessarily we're trying to get to a zero subsidy. Transit costs money, roads cost money. You know, we don't expect, you know, even on mass bike, you know, we don't expect you know, the toll or the gas tax or whatever else, you know, people think they're putting in to, to make that completely level. It's, it's, it's an investment uh, and there's externalities um, and, and other benefits that come out of that other than just the fare that's put in the fare mm-hmm.
2: box. Well, something that also needs to be said here, and, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who says, you know, all the roots are sacred cows and we can't touch any of them. Um, I, I think that I, I really appreciate Jeremy's, you know, thoughtful analysis of, well, maybe the roots can be improved. But, to get to Jared's point there, well, you know, there's hundreds of people. Even if it's a low ridership route, there's hundreds of people. Okay, now, um, you know, I, I can be, you know, really sappy, you know, and I don't want to cut cut their rides. But I think it's it's bigger than that because those hundreds of people are not just riding that route. Probably they're connecting to the system. It's a system. So mm-hmm. when we do the analysis of cutting these routes to save money, do we also do the analysis of of all the other impacts? Of cutting that route because that means those people don't show up in the system at all
0: that and route, vice versa yeah, yeah. you know I I mean if I gotta go to Needham well there's a bus route that goes to Needham if I gotta go to Beverly there's a bus route that goes to Beverly you know how often do I go to Beverly or Needham I've been to Needham a few times because I've had to go there for f- various reasons so that too it's like okay well I want to pay to have something now maybe maybe we can do something that's more efficient than a 40-foot bus but L- let's have that conversation sure but just don't just lock because it because those
2: people those people who now can't connect to the system Never take the system. So now the ridership right. just went down on whatever bus they connected to or whatever train they connected to. And that
0: that, what that's what you were a, saying before. with the sunk costs of having a car—if you have to buy a car to go out to Needham once a month—well, then you're going to yeah. drive it to the supermarket and stuff.
1: Yeah. So actually, speaking of sunk costs, do we want to talk a little bit more about the Green Line extension before we?
0: Yeah, we got like five minutes left—a uh, um, hard stop. But I, um, we, we should ma- at least mention that the Green Line extension, um, the the Fiscal Management Control Board and the M- Mass Dot Board. Um, which some of there's a little overlap there. Um, heard presentation from a number of consultants that were hired to review what went wrong. Mm-hmm. basically, the thing is that we know it's way over budget. And basically, it was hardly mismanaged, l- largely due to a combination, according to these consultants of schedule pressures, uh, in other words, trying to meet these deadlines that you know the the sharp deadline for the Mitigation, even though they moved the deadline, so I guess it wasn't really a deadline. Well, the um, other the biggest <laughs> deadline
1: was the federal, uh, federal, uh like appropriation right. of the grant right. that was supposed to be.
0: Um, and then you know, another thing is that the MBTA has four people within their design and construction department that were o- are overseeing this massive, massive project, and apparently that's not enough. And one of the uh, the MassDOT project manager was asked in specifically in, in this hearing, you know, he testified to the board and he was asked specifically, you know, what's um, you know, was was accounts for that? And he said, Yeah, the, the design and construction is has been very lean. Uh that's that's code for um, you know, we have <laughs> people. Yeah, under a culture of austerity. Yeah. We we have hiring freezes, we you know, we've laid people off, we just, they just don't have enough people. That's part of it. Um and then the other big part of it is contractors scamming the tea basically because they sort of see that and it's kind of a racket.
3: Well, uh, they want to a new process his, too. Yeah. They use some new process where instead of yes. you know, the, the normal, you know, you say I've got this part of the project, everybody, you know, show me your bid and you choose the lowest one, they basically design build. Yeah, design build and, and so that they they chose one person at the beginning and said, "All right, here are the pieces. You show us what is the maximum amount we've got to pay you for each for each thing." And, you know, that and, and I it gets the project done faster, but I mean, I I, I just don't don't see how that well, the new process oh, was, just was designed. Tea.
2: The new process was designed to prevent cost overruns. But what came out, um, what was discussed today, or I guess Monday, Monday, yeah. was Monday. that the process was not well understood or well utilized by the T. But of course, those who had a big financial interest in making money on the process, the contractors, they figured out how to get the most out of the process and you know, woe to the, who, the people at the T who didn't understand how to m- yep. get the best for the public and out of the process. And it's
1: not their fault. Uh, it's 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 not their problem that, that the T is over budget. The T getting all of the flack for it. So yeah. they walk away scot-free. And
0: will they learn? I mean, probably not. The, uh, the chief administrator of the T just presented to the financial, the fiscal, the FMCB uh, on Monday that, you know, just, just before this presentation they just presented and he said, oh, these are all the things we can do to ch- save costs and, you know, hiring freezes, wage cuts, you know, all the same stuff.
2: Yep. So yes. just one point of clarification, Jeremy, was it four people working only on this project, or do they have four people working on all of these types of projects?
0: They have four full-time employees dedicated. So it's actually 10 people, which is sort of kind of worse almost because everybody doesn't actually have their head in full-time, um, but four, are equivalent to four full-time people.
2: On just GLX on or GX. on all Bing projects? Oh, on just okay. GLX. Okay. okay
0: yeah um so uh, last thing I wanted to make uh, I want to make these two final points on this greenland extension um, one is that the there's been an extent there was a extensive public process um, some people say it's got a little out of hand um, and maybe it did but you know before we go around we don't know what's going to happen right now but before we talk about you know cutting this scaling this back and only having one entrance cutting the art whatever it is uh, we need to remember there was an extensive public process and we need to the the greenland extension needs to be built in in Basically, the way that it was planned, um, and the other thing, you know, they're talking about cuts to various things, right? We need to consider very carefully the impacts of these capital budget cuts on the operating yeah. costs, because we talk about this all the time. If you get rid of the fare gates, well, it's going to cost you more in dwell time. If you get change the station so that now you have to shovel more snow, that's going to cost you more money. If you get rid of the maintenance facility, well, now you're going to have to spend time every time you get a disabled train, you're going to have to drive it all the way out to Riverside.
1: We yeah. were, yeah, we were talking about that earlier in the program. The fact that, uh, yeah, you can raise fares all you want, you can uh, try to Patch the budget every single year for every single uh, uh deficit, but the the fact remains that we need investment in capital projects to reduce the operating costs. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, there's a reason that you know that that certain sayings have been around a long time. You know, if you want something you know, if you need to do something, you need to do it right the first time and different things like not putting in not putting, you know, more than one more than one headhouse, you know, yep. that might mean that people don't use it. It'll yeah. if you're It'll, coming from that end if you've got to walk you know, a certain distance around, you either you you're, you're going to take your car, you're going to take an Uber, you're going to do whatever else. All
0: right, yeah. we got 30 seconds, final words. All right, thank <laughs> you for listening to Transit Matters <laughs> podcast. Uh this, is, this has been a pleasure as always. Uh Jeremy Mendelson and you can follow us online. We have, um yeah, Josh Fairchild, the hatchback 31, uh it's Jared, Jarjo we have Mark at uh, he does the main Transit Matters uh, account and uh, I do Critical Transit and uh, find us at transitmatters.info and Send us email and uh, get in touch with Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and get involved because we can't do this without you.